0: Okay, well we might as well start. Um, my name's Adam Seedsman. Uh, I'm the Deputy Pro Vice-Chancellor of Industry Engagement um, here at RMIT in the College of Business. Um, and my relevance to, to being here today is um, I work with the Australian APEX Study Centre, um, uh, which is in my portfolio, and I've always found it a very interesting business unit in terms of the, the business that it does, the people that it actually uh, comes into contact with, and what it does through the Asia-Pacific region. Um, so I think we'll probably just, um, just sort of set the tone, fairly informal today. Um, we've, we've got a number of presentations um, from, uh, from Kristen, from, uh, from David, and also from Dale, who have kindly joined us today. Um, and also, I think with this size group, and I was uh, just talking briefly before with a few people, um, an opportunity to probably have a good discussion as well. Um, so it's not just uh, presentations, it's also an opportunity to have a, have a bit of a discussion. Um, before we proceed, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today, uh, the wandering people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay uh, our respects to their elders, both past and present um, in terms of uh, yeah, Indigenous people of Australia. Um, we do a lot of work with Indigenous um, peoples of Australia through RMIT, through a lot of our training programmes, through vocational education, higher education. Um, recently we've had uh, Mark McMillan join us as our um, Deputy Provost Chancellor of Indigenous Engagement and Education. Um, so RMIT has a, a rich history in that and um, we uh, will continue to do that in the future as well. Um, this event has been organised by the Australian Apex Study Centre um, as part of Australia's Free Trade Agreement Training Provider Grant Scheme, um, which was established, I think as many of you know, to assist eligible organisations to deliver tailor uh, tailored technical training projects and events to help uh, small to medium sized Australian businesses understand how to use and how to access free trade agreements um, The APEX Study Centre um, has been at RMIT University I think almost over 10 years now and as many of you would know it's uh, a leading research at the building institution across the Asia Pacific um, So working with the College of Business uh, and also with the industry engagement team, the Australian APEX Study Centre Offers valuable global engagement, um, collaboration, and learning opportunities for academics, students, uh, business, uh, and government organisations throughout the region. So, today's lunch, Um, we're going to look specifically at the agreements signed by the Australian Government um, with uh, China, Japan, and Korea, and the array of opportunities um, for the Australian mining services sector and mining companies um, made available through such agreements. Um, I was just listening to a few people before talk about really understanding not only the agreements, but what do they actually enable companies to do, and how do you actually understand how to take advantage of them and work them? Um, On that note, um, I'd like to hand you over to our first speaker, um, Kristen Bonadetti from ITS Global, um, who's going to provide us with some analysis on these agreements in the sector. Um, I'm sure that many of you do know, many of you don't know Kristen. uh, Kristen's an expert in international trade law, Policy and development, specialising in WTO agreements and free trade agreements. Areas of expertise include services, trade facilitation, technical and regulatory controls, and trade subsidies uh, and trade environment. Um, so just before Kristen starts, um, just thought I'd let you know you've got some feedback forms there, so we'd love to hear your feedback at the end of the day, um, just in terms of the session. Um, and then just in terms of housekeeping, just outside this door and to our right are bathrooms. Um, there's lunch here. Um, it's fairly informal, so please feel free to get up and serve yourself some more lunch and what have you. Uh, and with that, I'll hand over to Chris. Thank you,
1: Adam. Um, if you can't hear me, please tell me. I tend to speak a little bit quietly, so if you can't hear me, just yell out. Um, what I'll do today is just take you through what what FTAs are and what they seek to do. I'm going to focus on the North Asian FTAs with Korea, Japan and China, but equally happy to take questions on other FTAs at the end, but if you've got any questions as I go through, please stop me. I'm more than happy to clarify anything or answer questions as we go. So I'll speak about what FTAs do what's their main purpose, why they might matter, what are some of the opportunities that there might be for businesses such as yours under these agreements? And then just make some comments on how to secure opportunities. So firstly, we turn to what FTAs do and... I'm principally going to talk about services and investment. I'm not even going to talk about tariffs today because as trade is emerging and some of the major trends that are happening in trade, it's more than just tariffs okay. And our new FTAs that we have in place do more than simply remove tariffs. They regulate services and investment and they encapsulate a broad range of economic activity. So we're looking at services of investment, government procurement, e-commerce, labour, environment, disciplines on state-owned enterprises, much broader than what they used to be. And they also do more than simply open markets. They don't just remove tariffs. And as I'll speak about as we go along, they can go some way to help improve the business environment, and they can also serve as a catalyst for market reforms in other economies. So to drive more open standards and regulations in the region. But again, when we talk about free trade agreements, we're talking about treaties between governments. They're international agreements. They're negotiated outcomes. So the benefits vary among the agreements and among the different areas of the agreements, and they basically depend on what has been agreed. So what do they do? What are we talking about when we talk about regulation of services and investment in a free trade agreement? We're talking about legal commitments for regulation. So what free trade agreements do is they can change or alter laws and regulations in the home market and in the foreign market, which may or may not make it easier for business invest or to provide services, whether that be across the border from Australia into another market, or whether that be in terms of setting up a business in the foreign market to deliver services there. So that's what FTAs do. What they don't do is that they don't grant free trade or completely free trade, and they won't guarantee export success. They won't guarantee necessarily market opportunities. It depends on those So why do they matter? Why are we even talking about this? When we're talking about services and investment, services are really important in the mining sector, and I don't need to tell you that. Mining activity involves a huge range of services, not only in the MET sector, along the whole value chain, but also many services that are incidental to mining. And when we talk about trade today, we're not simply talking about services that are traded in their own right. We're talking about services that are incidental to goods activity. So services that are embodied or embedded in not only goods exports, but other services exports. And there's many in the mining sector. Project management, engineering, waste management, a huge array of environmental services, software design, data development. Many of you here today are providing a huge array of those services. And they're needed not only to help exports of goods, commodities, but also exports of other mining services as well. Presuming manufacturing, of equipment, and chemical technologies, there's a huge range of services that are provided. Having said that though, you probably know this more than me, METs are also a very significant services export um, industry in their own right. I've put up some of the statistics there that come from the Austmine uh, Business Survey and the Austmine work. Um, so, you can see over $90 billion in revenue, and the majority of, of um, businesses are exporters. So, the trade area is very important. And I'd just say also that bringing back to that point of how important embedded services are in, what services are in other goods, this just, just illustrates, it just gives you a sense of how important services are in terms of their value added contribution to Australian exports. Of course, this is not exclusive to the mining sector because, as I've just pointed out, mining services are spread across a whole range of other services sectors. Very difficult to define in that sector. Very difficult to encapsulate exactly what services are applied a huge range. But as you can see there, in terms of Australia, this shows a value of contribution of all services to Australian exports. Transport is significant. Business and ICT, other business encapsulates all the professional services, like project management, um, engineering and so forth. Construction and distribution all really important. And you find a lot of the services in the mining sector spread across all these categories. So services are really important to mining trade. And open services investment matter, as I pointed out, Services now play a critical role in trade. And rise over 50% of world trade on a valuated basis. And as I pointed out, have a very important role as inputs into broader economic activity. Investment as well. The picture of trade is not complete if we don't also have mention investment, which is now a key driver of growth. Global FDI flows are growing faster than trade at the moment. And over half of the mega sector operates offshore. I think the statistic from the Off Survey was about fifty-two percent of businesses are now operating offshore. And as you all well know, the mining industry relies on FDI, not only for equipment <coughs> funds, but also technology, know-how, and markets. Very important. Respect. Service investment are important, but barriers to services and investment are still quite high and problematic in that sense. So restrictions on services trade are high, two, three times higher than they are for trading rules. And particularly in the mining sector, there are tariffs, but as I understand it, the tariffs are not high. Perhaps for cases like India. Um, but services are very important. There's still high barriers. They're rated as a top impediment to trade in APEC. And importantly, commitments to liberalise services in most free trade agreements have not been widespread, with the exception of Australia, the US, and a few other economies. You find most economies in the Asia Pacific region, particularly the ASEAN economies, have not made significant commitments in their FTAs to open services. There's still quite a long way to go. And of course, the mining industry is impacted given the broad range of regulatory requirements that affect trade across so of manufacturing value chain, and also, as I mentioned before, the broad scope of services that are affected. So you might have regulations and engineering, report. you might have barriers to um, exploration, you might have licensing requirements for construction, project management, there's a whole huge range of bar- potential barriers and regulatory requirements that may fall within the reach of these FTAs. So services are important, investment are important, but barriers are high. This is a little analysis that's taken from 2015 data, which we did for DFAT and um, at the APEC Secretariat, just measuring the level of barriers and restrictions and services across the various sectors. So you can see there that the blue line indicates the level of how restrictive the barriers are, and the red line shows the number of economies that are taking. So, for example, if you add up all the transport there, which has got maritime, air, road, rail, you can see the barriers across the transport sector across APEC are numerous. Similarly, with the professional services sector. Quite <clears throat> So services and investment are important. Also, North Asian markets are important. So they're not only a major export market for energy and mineral exports. As we all know, China's the largest export destination. Japan uh, and Korea are important. And they're also growing markets for men's exports. Um, in the offline survey, um, I think 23% of companies identify North and East Asia as potential export opportunities. China was rated as one of the top markets for new opportunities, um, along with India. And they're also a very source, very important source of foreign investment. We've seen recently rising levels of foreign direct investment from China and Japan, which can see from the chart. And China's also the largest recipient of um, FDI approvals on like the FRB um, decision-making process for um, investment in mining. I think it was about $1.5 billion in mining approvals were granted between 2015 and 16. So as you can see here, there's been rising levels of foreign direct investment which have, I guess, coincided with the signing of the free trade agreements. Um, Japan on the upward trajectory, um, China's increased livelihoods since 2012, and a slight uptick from um, Korea as well. And that's a stock of investment. All, all these this shows uh, China's rising investment in mining and across services. So, this is data which is actually created by um, Chinese. We don't actually collect it by sector, by country. But you can see there increasing investment in mining in China, at levels, and also across the services sector on 2012. Uh, So in addition to the rising levels of investment and services, it's important to note that in these economies, there are policy agendas that do create growth opportunities. So Korea, Japan and China all understand that their economies still need reform in the services area. And to an extent, free trade agreements have facilitated this or in some ways provided justifications for domestic so in the same way that China used the World Trade Organisation entry back in 2001 to drive the process of liberalisation in its services sector and across its economy, some of these free trade agreements have had a similar function. Uh, For example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, um, Japan's used to push through some domestic reforms, Korea used its bilateral agreement with the United States 10 years ago in order to push through some of its uh, domestic reforms as well. More broadly, China has triggered review of an APEC wide FTA. Um, some time off, of course, but there is interest there. And as a general point, is moving towards re- reorienting the economy towards services and technology and further away from goods production as a long term policy. So there are some opportunities there to facilitate the effectiveness of the FTAs. So that really is just set the scene for why investment services are important, why it's important for the mining industry. What I'll do now is just go through some of the, go through the FTAs and just give you a flavor of, of some of the things the FTAs might do for business. And we've basically broken it down to five main things. So, and I'll go through each of these in turn. Firstly, what people talk about most, is delivering commercial opportunities. So making it easier to access or to invest in foreign markets and typically that's what when the government talks about market access that's typically what we're talking about there's also a function of improving the business operating environment so going beyond the border beyond the tariff reduction beyond the market access commitment to see what these free trade agreements can do to make operation in the market easier make things more transparent make it easy to do business Thirdly, and I think this is often overlooked when we look at the free trade agreements, is the importance they have in terms of expanding investment. Whether that may be in terms of outlet investment by Australian companies, or whether that is in encouraging foreign investment into Australia. it's also so important. Another thing free trade agreements can do is improve these outcomes over time. A lot them set up mechanisms in which to facilitate further liberalisation, or to address specific trade concerns. And lastly, a broader overriding overriding policy function, which is to support more open and competitive markets in the region, generally, standards standard setting function. So just to give you some examples of how this is done in the free trade agreements, firstly in terms of delivering commercial opportunities. There are some direct benefits from greater market access, including for mining companies. So this may be in terms of new rights to establish and supply services, which previously didn't exist. So the legal commitments to allow companies to operate there. Um, there are some commitments in the, the China Agreement to expand the delivery of mining-related services, technical consulting services, which previously were not granted. Or had were granted under more restrictive terms. For example, there may have been lower levels of foreign investment. Um, there's also um, in some of the free trade agreements what we call WTO plus access treatment provided, which means that the existing level of access that was provided to firms under the WTO has been improved upon in these free trade agreements. So, for example, in the Korean agreement and the China agreement, Australian companies have the capacity to provide environmental services, um, more environmental services than other countries which do not have an FTA with China. So that's in-place disposal services and some other services. So new rights, new legal rights. More importantly, however, in my view, I think some of the indirect benefits have been greater. And these have really arisen from the general expansion of trade and economic activity that's happened as a result of the FTAs, or has coincided with the FTAs being signed. And particularly important for services providers because, as, for example, goods trade has expanded under, under the free trade agreements, perhaps as tariffs have gone down and levels have increased, services providers have been able to leverage that expanded activity to provide their own services. And it's particularly the case where we're talking about services that are embodied in goods trade. So, for example, as mining activity is expanded, then there's been a greater need, for example, for exploration services, for equipment services, for engineering services, for project management services. All the things that go along with expanded goods trade um, has given greater services activity as well. (coughs) And likewise, for outward bound, outbound and intra arting investment flows, the more investment activity you get, the more trade associated with that services. So benefits from increased market access, but also perhaps some capacity to alter, positively alter the regulatory landscape in FTA markets. So there are various provisions in these trade agreements which seek to enhance transparency of regulations in foreign markets, that seek to discipline state-owned enterprises and operate more competitively in the market. And there are also provisions which encourage governments to facilitate mutual recognition of professional qualifications. Um, a lot of these commitments in their free trade agreements are not hard and binding, but they do sit there and they do help to encourage um, governments and business to improve what we call beyond the border, the regulatory landscape. So I've just put up there some examples of some of the commitments. So the Japan Agreement has a dedicated chapter on minerals and energy. And there are provisions in that chapter for governments to exchange information and consult over regulations for energy and minerals, including raising bilateral trade concerns that might occur. And there is provision in the agreement for the private sector to have some access into that um, consultation mechanism, So that's quite important. There are also disciplines in the Japan and China agreement which seek to encourage state-owned enterprises, um, exclusive service providers and monopolies to operate more competitively. So the general provisions against anti-competitive conduct, which are supposedly enforceable through administrative mechanisms. And there are also agreements to encourage mutual en- mutual recognition agreements. And these typically are not done at the intergovernmental level. They're agreements between um, industry bodies who um, Undertake the agreement to do that outside of the FTA, but encouraged by the FTA. So, for example, in the Korean agreement, there is a provision for governments to encourage mutual recognition in the engineering sector. In 2015, the um, Engineers Australia did reach a mutual recognition agreement with the Korean counterpart to look at easing qualification requirements between the two governments. Just some results there. Also oh, important for the mining sector, movement of people transporters. borders. So there are provisions in the agreements to facilitate skilled labour. For example, the Japan agreement, particular agreements for engineering persons, qualified persons. Um, and also provisions to encourage uh, and address shortages for lower skilled labour in Australia. So the investment facilitation agreements, which are established under the China agreement, um, allow um, Chinese businesses operating in Australia to um, some labour market flexibilities. I think it's under the 457 visa system, it hasn't been changed. Um, to bring in a labour for infrastructure development projects, which are over $150 million. So some flexibilities there. Investment, also important under free trade agreements. There are well, they do have a capacity to expand uh, Australian investment abroad. So Australian investments now receive protection under these free trade agreements, have so legal standards for investment protection. Typically you'll find them in bilateral investment treaties but they've now been brought into free trade agreements. Um, so for example, um, investors in China now receive greater protections under the agreement than previously existed. In
2: terms of liberalisation for investments, so making it easy to set up, establish a business, or
1: operate in a foreign country, um, they do. There are commitments for those in Japan and Korea agreements. China has not yet made any commitments to guarantee liberalisation for new investments in the FTA. There are protections for existing Australian investments in China, but greater liberalisation in China is subject to further commitments which China will make in the future. There's an in mechanism, which I'll talk about in a minute, whereby China has agreed to negotiate more commitments to open its investment sector um, over time. That process of review is currently underway with the Australian government. And so we'll see what happens there. Um, and I've just put up on the screen there, at the same time that China is doing this, it's doing a similar thing with its negotiations and its agreement with New Zealand. New Zealand and China agreements is being updated to include some more investment liberalisation as well. And China is also negotiating in the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, which includes all the ASEAN economies Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and China, and India. And there will be investment in that agreement as well. There's a few things going on in Importantly as well, these free trade agreements can encourage foreign investment in Australia. So not only do direct investments from Korea, Japan, and China become more attractive by the raising of the FIRB thresholds, which is equivalent to other FTO partners, but also another important factor of the um, conclusion of the free trade agreements is perhaps the head turn effect that these agreements have had. as a result, purely of having the agreement, an intergovernmental agreement, particularly in the case of China and Korea, there is an enhanced perception of Australia as an investment as a foreign investment, a destination for foreign investment. Um, we, um, about this time last year, we did a study with PwC, which looked at the um, attempted to assess the impact of these FTAs on business decisions. We, as a during the study, we spoke to a range of businesses about what were the impacts on the businesses um, as it rising from these free trade agreements. And most of the businesses operating, particularly in China and Korea, said, look, the most positive thing that's happened out of these FTAs is that Australia is more visible in the market. Australia is a, more, is a more trusted destination for investment. We're seeing more activity simply because we're more on the map now. And particularly when it came to services and investment. It would have been very important in Korea because the trade relationship with Korea, particularly in services, is not anywhere as long standing as it may have been the case, is the case with Japan, for example. So, something that we've so. And, fourthly, I'm getting towards the end, um, a lot of these outcomes can be improved over time. And perhaps this is one of the most understated benefits of the FTAs. There are mechanisms in these agreements to to make things better in the future. So you'll often hear the government talk about them as being living agreements. So they're done, they've been negotiated, but it's not over yet. A lot of them have built in mechanisms to expand liberalisation and to improve things over time. And we've seen that recently with the Singapore Australia Free Trade Agreement recently been updated and amended, amended to provide for more liberalisation, improved commitments, um, particularly across the services area. That agreement <coughs> was back in 2003, a very long time ago, and it needed to be updated to reflect some of the changes that have occurred in free trade agreements and some of the broader uh, liberalisation of um, so the as well. So just an example, hopefully the same thing can happen with the China agreement. Another important thing the free trade agreements do is that they establish these committees across various areas of the agreements. There's a committee on professional services, a committee on working group services, one on technical barriers, one on investment, etc. And what these committees serve to do is to bring regulators together to address specific trade concerns or issues that might arise as a result of the agreement. So what they do is they provide a platform to actually engage in dialogue and to raise concerns. Some of them do allow access for the private sector indirectly, but they are essentially intergovernmental committees. And lastly, there are inbuilt mechanisms, uh, commitments, which do help <laughs> spread the benefits of liberalisation of these agreements. This is through most favoured Nation clauses, which basically commit um, FTA parties to give um, the existing FTA partner any better treatment they negotiate subsequently in another FTA. So, for example, our free trade agreement with Japan has an MFN clause in relation to services. Japan has just concluded a free trade agreement with the EU. So, barring all the exceptions and conditions on that, any better treatment that Japan has negotiated with EU service providers in that agreement would then automatically apply to us. So, quite, quite a handy way to actually spread liberalisation throughout the network of internationalisers that we're seeing. And lastly, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's it. Um, lastly, just I guess more of a policy comment, but FTAs can also serve as vehicles for economic reform over the longer term. So as legal commitments to open services are set in free trade agreements, and these are spread throughout the region, um, there are benefits in the longer term for traders throughout the region, particularly as supply chains become more integrated, Um, these agreements can really set down standards to actually open services and investment markets uh, in ways that otherwise may not be done. And so, in terms of securing opportunities, I've only got a few comments because, obviously, there are some caveats. I'd just like to say that, obviously, governments negotiate these agreements but it's business that trades, so it's business that really needs to secure and realise the opportunities. When we're talking about um, opportunities or we're talking about gains, it is quite hard to measure these, particularly when it comes to services and investment. And I think we need to keep in mind that these agreements are still quite new. Um, the China agreement only entered into clause in 2016, so it's in a way a little bit too early to be measuring the benefits. Um, as you well know, it takes time to factor in regulatory changes into investment decisions and um, it can be quite hard to see immediate results. Also the whole point with services is they're very difficult to quantify. It's not like goods where you can measure for example a marginal preference on the tariff reduction, Measuring how more open service or a reduced restriction or regulation has impact on businesses is very difficult. And of course it goes without saying that what we're looking at here is only one very small part of doing business and exporting. We're looking at free trade agreements, we're looking at regulations which are just one part of the story in the broader business context, of course, which you know well more than I So as I pointed out before, it's business that trades and invest and obviously it requires more than changes to regulation. So FTAs can do their bit to possibly help, but more needs to be done if they are going to benefit in the board. So I'll just leave it there. But if anyone has any questions, please I'm more than happy to answer them.
3: Um, you asked. Said so you could ask a question about the FTA. How do they you know, the FTA with ASEAN? Is there much of a difference?
1: Um, I'd say the ASEAN FTAs as a whole, the commitments for services and investment. I can't speak specifically about the mining sector, but are in less liberal. So our general view would be that, particularly the agreements in Korea and Japan, are more comprehensive, greater commitments better opening of services markets, I um, And you'll find that generally with the uh, RDM agreements, they tend in this commitments on services and investment not to go really beyond services. It's very much the key to what they WTO. Some examples of, of extra commitments, but generally it's very, not much beyond WTO. And investment still quite closed, particularly international so yeah, I would say, as a general comment, the Korean Japan agreement is quite high quality for FTAs. The China one is interesting because China is it's China's actually first FTA with a developed economy. Um, but ours has got um, quite significant services commitments if you compare it to, I guess, WTO as a whole, but compared to the market opening
0: Undertaken by career in Japan or commitments, it's not not as good. good. Kristen, a question if I may. Um, Looking sort of down the track, how do you see um, the position in the FTA between Australia and China primarily evolving in the context of RCEP and the Greater Belt Road Initiative? Where's the sort of scholarship or the thinking about where we might be with regard to these five years down the track and things like most stable information status. Yeah.
1: Um, my understanding, I'm not sure where the um, review of the commitments under the chapter, of the China Agreement, is at, but I understand that's still a very preliminary stage. Um, as always envisaged that within two years that process would lead to some better outcomes for Australia. Um, As I understand, the review was actually brought forward by the Chinese um, maybe a year, so there is definitely an indication that they're willing to engage in that area, but from what we're hearing about what's happening in the asset negotiations, um, I think the agenda of Australia and New Zealand in terms of investments is considered to be quite ambitious, um, particularly by the ASEANS and potentially China. Five years down the road, we could potentially see some improvements under the chapter and the bilateral sense. But in terms of RSEC delivering any major improvements in investment liberalisation, just given the mix of the parties, you've got ASEAN, you've got China, you've got India in there, um, I'll say we have low expectations for any substantial investment. Um, I mean, there will always be. Industry-specific examples, which obviously the governments will really be negotiating based on a specific interests. But as, as across the board, I would expect ASIC not to be um, I think that's but, quite a healthy
3: point. Yeah, I mean, just give, just just the mix of the parties with RZ in there—it's it's quite difficult. Um, yeah, maybe just a general comment. You maybe agree or disagree that. I think what we find is the bilaterals are high quality agreements simply because of the fact they're easier to negotiate than the multilateral ones. You can achieve more, arguably, but in a bilateral sense, <coughs> often the people, the trade officials who are involved say it's far easier to negotiate things which are higher quality than when you're also concerning parties and counterparties in the
1: Ooh, so rightly said that it's up to the firms to really secure the opportunities that are out there with the different FTAs, but I was thinking of, well, of course, the trade negotiators who put the FTA together, um, but oftentimes the FTAs really function when, when the firms are there in a very early stage. So trade negotiators get a lot of real market information from the companies. Is that something that you have seen in the, you've mentioned three of the FTAs? Is that something that you're aware of? Um, I, I can't comment on DFAT's process for taking into that industry use. Dave's um, probably got more to say on that. But certainly in our experience, um, if there is a specific interest, interest that business has, it's always valuable to push that or put that to the government because mm-hmm. DFAT, well, they will run the negotiations and do need to do, but if
3: they yeah, have interest in mind, yes, yeah, definitely, it's it's important. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what are you, no, I that I think, you think the yeah, the always well, very keen to get a business perspective on these things. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, in our know, areas, and probably in the mining sector, we find very um, they reach out a lot and um, they're quite responsive to any comments we make.
2: Just on that question
3: of bilaterals better than multilaterals, what's the prospect of uh, Indonesia, Australia, and delivering something, or is that too hard as well?
1: <laughs> um, last I heard that, well, originally the agreement was supposed to be concluded by the end of last year, but um, as I understand it, there's been some problems in Indonesia being forthcoming in terms of offering anything more meaningful than what's currently in the Australia, New Zealand, ASEAN Free Trade Agreement. So as I understand it, they're still negotiating on trying to get some meaningful outcomes because the government's very much focused on ensuring that there is something in the agreement that is an improvement upon what we've currently got. So I think it's just you know, being a little bit problematic. But I'm not sure when we'll see a result, but hopefully we'll see. <laughs>
0: Okay. Um, well, I might uh, say thank you very much, uh, Kristen, for, for that part of uh, today's sort of roundtable discussion and presentations. Um, and obviously, you're here as well, so any other questions as well uh, to Christians as we're sort of going through the day? Um, now, I'd like to invite uh, David, David Byers, who's the interim chief executive of the Minerals Council of Australia. Um, to, uh, to sort of present to us this afternoon. Um, David's has been with the Minerals Council since uh, July 16, I think. Um, yes. uh, but before that, I had a, a long career doing many other things, including sort of, uh, obviously the resources sector. Time with ExxonMobil Corporation, in a variety of senior roles, uh, planning human resources um, across Melbourne, Singapore, Dallas, and elsewhere. So, uh, David, welcome, thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks, uh, everyone. Um, I think, Dale, you're going to talk a little bit more from the service
3: perspective, aren't you? Yes, so I'll be talking about METs or mining engineering <coughs> technical common so good. OK, so this is about digging. Excellent. Well, that'll, that'll work out properly. Because I'm, I'll i have some comments about METs, but I'm going to talk you know, largely about sort of what's happening in the mining industry and try to give you some context as to what's happening now. really what's been happening over the past 10 years. Um, And secondly, just to sort of put that export story that we have now into some sort of sharp relief, there's been some huge shifts over the past decade um, as a result of the mining boom, and what that means for mining exports and services exports from the mining sector compared to other sectors. And finally, I will make some comments on some of the FTAs that feel like opportunities and challenges both for the mining sector and METS, and I'm sure Dale will pick up a theme in respect of um, METS. so, firstly, do I point this at this thing here? Is that is it the red one there? This is a, um, a slide which just gives you um, the results of a study that we did, which was all about the economic contribution of the mining and the med sector. And people tended to know a little bit about the mining sector and the med sector, but this is something that we did with the Lloyds Access Economics last year. Um, and you see that the numbers are very, very uh, large, $198 billion, and accounting now for, this is for mining only, over 50% of Australia's export income. Interestingly, when we wanted to sort of look at the contribution of the entire sector, mining and METs, um, you run into some rapid problems of definition of the MET sector. And it's one of the things that we did sort of spend a lot of time on in putting this study together was to make sure that we really did reflect the mining equipment the technology and services aspects of the sector, the direct contribution to the industry. But anyway, the, the numbers there are that when you roll together mining and nets, together they contribute 15% of Australia's GDP. Over 1.1 million employees, so that's basically one in 10. And um, for the mining sector now, post the massive investment boom, you have a net capital stock of $850 billion, which is a very large number. Okay, <coughs> METs. Uh, there's a sort of graphic, I suppose, of some of the, the, the major med sectors we're talking about, but if you'd like to sort of cluster it, I'd sort of think about it in three different areas. Heads of the road. Here. Firstly, um, the services sector. Uh, so there you get everything from contract miners. Downer EDI, many of you would be familiar with them, providing lots of services to the industry, right through to people providing sort of support services for the sector. Secondly, there's those manufacturers of equipment for mines, Um, and you know, there's there's a number of those which are sort of important players, even some here in Victoria. Um, Gecko Mining comes to mind, for example. A lot of work in the gold industry through Gecko. And thirdly, there's that category of specialised technologies. Um, Increasingly here, and I'll talk a little bit about this later on, it's in the communications area, it's software, and it's IT. Something like 60%, I think the number is, of all of the mining software uh, in the world comes out of Australia. This shows you um, the uh, Australia's export um, revenue across the board. And it shows that it in mining, tourism, rural services, uh, rural goods, manufacturing and other services. Now, if you look at you, clearly, it's, it's clear where mining is there. That includes petroleum as well, by the way oil and gas. But if you look at um, where METS comes in, METS really comes into the first category there, which is mining, because of that contract services comes into that part of it, under manufacturing. You'll see a lot of the equipment, manufacturing, drills and machinery comes out of that sector. And finally, in the other services, it's geoscience, it's IT, it's those specialised technologies. So you know, this is one of the things which is confronting the med sector, I think, is there's no the way in which the Australian Bureau of Statistics codes work. There's a readily identifiable mining sector. There's not a readily identifiable med sector. You have to really thumb through the detail to get a sense of you know, what its contribution is. This uh, chart shows you really, really what's been happening in the mining industry since 2000, and what we call the three phases of the, of the boom. The first boom was driven by price, which incentivised a lot of involvement and investment in the sector. In the second phase, there was that huge mining boom. That's what people associate with the mining boom from. through to 2015 and the final phase which we're now seeing which we're in is the production phase and um, what we're left with is a much larger industry now post that investment boom Uh, the iron ore industry for example is about three times bigger than it was in in every dimension before the start of the, the boom and the other thing which i would say is that while commodity prices have come off in recent years those enhanced volumes mean that the contribution to Australia's exports has stayed very, very high simply because of that sort of volume um, number there. Okay, where do those those resources exports go? You can see primarily um, China is just a huge market now and the big growth has been in China 2006 to 2007, shown on the blue line there, and the orange line 2016-17. Uh, but the other markets, are, and Japan has always been you know, one of the constant um, uh, mainstays in the Australian resources sector, really right back to the 50s. Uh, Japan really you know, has, has continues to be a very, very important um, player for us. Um, but the ones which you know everyone is excited about, of course, is India, because there's very much now a lot of investment going into India, as in as India uh, starts to open up its economy and starts to look at um, you know the, its its GDP starts to improve, its growth, and uh, economic growth starts to make an impression, then it's going to be a big market of the future. And similarly, it's that sort of Southeast Asian uh, corner as well, where a lot of the uh, increased demand for coal is coming from, really funding the industrialisation and the urbanisation which is going on in those countries. Okay. Mm. Uh, would it be, be as English I don't think so. I think you can see there just simply from the size of the population in China um, and also the size of the economy. I mean, China, who knows when it will happen, but I mean, most of the economists are saying that one day China will exceed the United States as the most consequential global economy, I don't know about. Um, I think India has got a long way to go. The thing in India's favour is demographics. Um, it has a lot of younger people coming through, whereas China has had a relatively ageing population. So that's going to stimulate a lot more growth out in the future. But it's a, uh, it's it's a, a good question. You know, who's going to be the biggest player? I just think that given where China is now given the way in which they've been able to organise their economy, given they've had sort of 10 to 20 years of a track record of being able to do so, and maintain it at a relatively high level, uh, it's going to be very hard to match that for a country which doesn't have the same degree of central planning, doesn't have the same degree of command control and uh, control uh, in its economy in the case of India. India, I think, would be more regionalised. Gujarat is, for example, one of the places where people talk about as uh, one of in the leading lights of um, mining and uh, infrastructure development. Um, but, it, whichever way you look at it, it's going to be very important. Uh, there's a lot of companies now which are looking very much towards India, and particularly some of the infrastructure, which, the infrastructure build which India is going to change. OK, the um, key export values, um, you can see here, just look at the huge growth in iron ore. as just to take one example. The blue line there was 2000, 2001, you know, less than $10 billion. When you look at where it is now, uh, the orange line there, you're up around $63, $64 billion over that period of history. So that's what's happening in the industry. Similarly, metallurgical coal, and that's a lot of that is linked into what's been happening in the steel industry particularly in places like China, but also in India, uh, which is a big source uh, globally for coal exports coming out of Australia, and thermal coal as well. I mean, a lot of people are predicting, you know, the death of coal, the decline of coal. Um, we certainly don't see that uh, when we look at what's happening in some of those growth areas in Southeast Asia and also in India. Certainly it's true that thermal coal has, has flattened out in China, as you would expect, um, there's been a lot of moves happening in China, driven by environmental reasons, um, cleaning up air pollution and the like, where there's been a, a shift across to gas as a primary source. But you're still seeing a thermal coal um, exports from Australia. China still remains one of our biggest markets. Um, and some of that is coming about from substitution for domestic coal um, production, uh, Chinese coal production. So... Our major three exports there, uh, and the third one being, of course, gold. The uh, Australian gold production, as well, has as really been We've seen some phenomenal growth um, from uh, that of 2000 to 2001 uh, right through to 2016 17. Okay, so having that little bit of context, now turning our attention to free trade agreements. I mean, Crystal's given a comprehensive answer to the benefits of of, um, free trade agreements. But let me just think about this in terms of what the benefits have been for mining, and thinking here about China and Korea and Japan. Look, the the major and most obvious benefits has been that there's now zero tariffs, effectively, uh, on commodities. If I look back before the China had a 3% um, tariff on Coking coal. And a 6%, 6% tariff on thermal coal. That um, coking coal 3% tariff has been <coughs> moved immediately on the signing of the chapter. The thermal coal 6% is sort of progressively being staged down. I think the last move was actually, in fact, it would have been at the end of last year, so it really should be uh, down to 0% now. <coughs> so that's been the first benefit. The other one is, I think, picks up on a couple of the comments that um, Christine made. It's the mechanisms to review non-tariff barriers, which we see, such as investor-state dispute mechanism and that sort of thing. It's very hard to put value on these things, but from the point of view of being an investor in those markets, these are one of the benefits of actually having a free trade agreement. (coughs) If you get involved in a dispute with um, the uh, investor state, then there's a mechanism and a way to be able to sort of handle any kind of dispute. and for countries that are not necessarily uh, in free trade agreements as well, the fact that they are going down the pathway of having a free trade agreement submits you to a process whereby you're starting to show that you are prepared to be able to be subject to these kinds of, um, feel like, third-party dispute mechanisms. So it gives a sense of confidence, and I can come back and talk a little bit about that in the Q&A, uh, to companies that are going to participate in those markets. And the third thing which, certainly from the perspective of the mining industry we're seeing, is that in these markets, because they do bring some services liberalisation. if you think of it from the point of view of a mining company operating in any of these countries, Korea, Japan or China, it may, and particularly this is the case with China, it means you've got a much more competitive services market, with Australian companies, and not just Australian companies, but uh, other countries around the region being able to compete into those markets. It means, from the perspective of a major mining company, you have a more competitive environment for uh, services suppliers. <clears throat> Having said all of that, though, there remain some major challenges, and um, I talked about uh, the tariff situation in uh, China. One of the probably biggest issues for the industry has been the non-tariff tariff areas, and the best example I can give to you of that has been in the area of um, product quality. Um, China has introduced these coal quality standards. Now they're driven. Apparently, but um, their argument is by environmental reasons, but also health reasons. But there is an argument to say, given the way in which they've been implemented, is it really, a, a really more of a drive, reflecting more of a drive, to protect some of their domestic coal production? Um, the way in which this works is that um, China's introduced some coal quality testings in two areas, fluorine, fluorine and also phosphorus. Um, Those tests are normally not acquired in other countries, but China has introduced the requirement for the testing. And if there are these sorts of tests, then typically what happens is that the host government would uh, recognise the um, testing at the low port. Now, in the case of China, um, it doesn't recognise any testing that might be done, for example, in in Australia before you go overseas. That's been an issue. All the testing is required to be carried out by the... um, Uh, the China Inspection Quarantine Authority. That's led to a lot of delays at the port, 10 to 20, in some cases, days, up to six weeks. And um, it's also been a a bit of an issue too in terms of non-uniformity of the language those testing centers have been applied. So I I give that example to say that, you know, there are, you know, some very good... Uh, provisions coming out of free trade agreements, but often what you still find these sort of stubborn ways to be able to uh, introduce non-tariff barriers. Um, and arguably you could say these are somewhat against the spirit and the intent of an agreement-like chapter, but it's, kind of, it's a very difficult thing to be able to um, resolve. And I will say on this one, I think that our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has been doing a great job in trying to resolve this issue on behalf of Australian coal producers. So there is, you know, to you ever asked the question before about DfAT. Uh, I, I must say they've been very good at uh, taking account of the industry. And, and we acknowledge that this is a complex issue. I mean, you know, um, there are a number of things which the Chinese are trying to balance here. Uh, but nonetheless, <coughs> it is an issue which does have some uh, impacts on... Uh, the uh, coal exporters from Australia. I
2: was going to make a comment today, uh, but even uh, our experience, even if they're not free trade agreements, these, these processes are in fact the big we find exported to 69 countries. Yes. Our biggest um, impact is trying to, like, I picked Russia. Yeah. Which, can, which can be. Oh, we're 55 technology, intrusion right. detection yes. Technology. Yes. yes. So the Russians, if, well, for example, the Russians will test to assist the 22 standard. Yeah, it's got to be with Russians, you've got to our own. So no harmonisation from FCC. And it adds probably five or six months more to do the work. Yes. Um, even just on one purchase order.
3: Yes. So it's, it's a very serious issue, that I think. It is, and I was going to talk about that on the too, too. So I can see that I think it's even a bigger issue there because these ones are sort of relatively obvious. They're talking yes. about major commodities some of the work that you're involved in, it's less obvious and there are still some tariff barriers still under here in different expertise? That's effectively, yeah. They the
2: and take out yes. because of the yes. So, but it's that, a very significant issue when that's used. And it is quite, it is used against you. It's no, yes. no doubt, but it is much just for cost as uh, so a lot other things. Right. So, uh, and, and <coughs> I guess there is that
3: sort of, you know, broad category two of you know some of the regulation in these countries being quite opaque unpredictable um, you know both in terms of regulation but also in terms of taxation now free trade agreements they help to screen a lot of those things out but um as some of the major companies say well yes they do david but the facts are stubborn and we still see these kinds of issues there and really moving now to um if you like outside of the, um, the China, Korea and Japan envelope, into other countries which are in the region, major customers. One of the things we see on the mining side is the rise of some resources nationals. Um, two countries i point to there, Indonesia and the Philippines, where you know, you're either having to operate in tandem with a local partner, or you're having to, um, or a joint venture company, or you're having to kind of give over certain parts of the, of the process to local involvement. Again, those those are things which are, if you like, nothing to do with the FTAs which have been negotiated, but then are the sorts of things which some of the mining companies look out for when they're going into new countries, um, new countries of entry. And then, um, finally, with regards to METS, I guess this is sort of Dale, I'm sure, will pick up some of these things, so I won't sort of uh, pound it to death. But I think the opportunity is clearly there, given the economic growth in Asia, um, the urbanisation, industrialisation, infrastructure, energy storage. So there are those opportunities there. That's fundamentally driving it. The other issue is, when I think about the Med sector sector, I think about its relationship to mining, is Australia really is world leading in mine development. You know, that's in the active phase of developing planning and all, all that goes with that. And so there are many disciplines that go with that where Australia has made you know, something of a reputation in the med sector. Uh, and I'm talking about areas of geotechnical consultants, um, mining, electrical and <coughs> process engineering, a lot of good Australian mining engineers in quite senior positions around the world. That has a benefit effect I think, a beneficial effect I think for some of the services companies, even if they migrate across into the uh, services sector. Environmental science and mine rehabilitation, you know, it's something where very much uh, the standards that we, um, the major companies operate to in Australia are really much higher than many places around the world. And I mentioned as well the mining computer software, which a lot of which comes out of Australia. So that's an important um, factor in terms of, you know, Australia's reputation in world mine- leading mining development. And the second one, I think, which is um, important here is the new technologies. Um, Particularly if I, you know, Mm -hmm. mention two companies here and I, without the risk of offending everyone else, but I'll do it, BHP and Rio Tinto are very much, because they're in that bulk commodity market, they're investing heavily in um, digital technologies, analysis of big data, um, automation all in a drive to be able to improve their productivity, develop repeatable processes and therefore that sort of, there's a lot of sort of world leading technological development just coming out of the mining sector and it would surprise you to know that a lot of the investment is going into sort of more into communications technologies and the like now, my friend over here will probably attest to that, than say the traditional kind of mine development technologies. So that sort of, I'm not suggesting that sort of applicable across the entire industry, but certainly for the major players in the bulk commodity space, this is becoming very much a gang, part of their game plan. And a lot of Australian companies are providing services into that sort of area, which there are opportunities there for global order to be able to um, apply those skills. Um, Indonesia, I think someone mentioned Indonesia before, talk about this a little bit more I suppose but Indonesia consistently um, ranks as either the top or the second top uh, market in the ASEAN for meds firms and I think this is probably dominated by some of the mining services companies such as the downers and Thesis and companies like that you would know of which were involved very much in the construction phase but increasingly it's in some of the <coughs> specialised um, development, uh, specialised equipment areas as well where a lot of Australian Meds companies suppliers are involved in Indonesia um, and 140 meds firms in fact. And I mentioned that the other area of a big opportunity really is in India. I know for example, you know, BHP talks a lot about the opportunities available in India to be able to be a major supplier as um, and we have um, Raj from Adani here who can talk about really more about what's going on in India than I can, but um, it's a very exciting kind of area, I think, of growth for services companies, which I'm sure Raj will have a lot comments on. And finally, looking at the challenges area, and again, picks up a couple of these things. Um, you still have some tariffs in the services sector. You do have a number of non-tariff measures, product standards and imports licences, I think very much the kinds of things which METs companies are really um, put through their own experience out Red tape that the big one property is protection of intellectual property. That's not always standardised. We are quite a consideration of being able to participate in some of these markets. And the final one I've sort of put here is that it's probably more of a, a commentary on the structure of the METs sector uh, in Australia. We have very few, very large firms. They tend to be sort of smaller SMEs, and they're not sort of at the status of being, if you like, global one original equipment manufacturers. Um, you don't tend to find, you know, a lot of the tier one uh, miners, for example, they tend to like to deal with the global original equipment manufacturers, such as the Komatsu, and Caterpillar, companies like that, Hitashi, because they want to do things in the same way around the world. So that becomes Know, you feel like that's a structural issue um, not saying that it's not sort of soluble but it is a sort of factor I think that we need to recognise as a challenge for suppliers going global that there is that question of scale and therefore capacity to be able to sort of link you know, into the supply chains of some of those major okay. Um and the other one too I suppose is you know nothing stays the same and it's fair to say that even in some of these the developing, the rapidly developing countries, um, we're finding a um, you know there's a local med sector starting to emerge. So it's obviously going to be a source increasingly of competition for Australian med suppliers in any of these markets. But um, I think the opportunity is still a very, very big one. Uh, acknowledging that there's still a few
0: challenges to overcome. Thank you. Thanks, David. Anybody have any questions for David at this point or any comments? David, I have a question. You, you put up a graph showing the, the top exports. I think it was iron ore, metallurgical yes. ore, coconut coal, coal, thermal coal, gold. Um, where do you see, or what does the Mineral Council of Australia see, lithium yeah. playing forward in the future in the Asia region, given the Japanese government's practice of developing yeah. indigenous? lithium manufacturing capacity for storage cells, etc., yeah. And India, heading down that road with government policy announcing their intent an indigenous uh, electric vehicle. I actually have a style on lithium, and I've got no one I'll talk
3: too long if I talk about lithium as well. But so, but i sorry, I, I have in my hand not give you a picture, but it's very important. But it needs to be said, that, you know, you have to, it's a, push a scale, and you look at where these products are now, you know, they are the main of of Australia. Lithium is still quite small. It's undergoing rapid development. Um, there's a number of um, quite substantial lithium players now, miners developing in Australia. It's certainly, we see it very positively that it is going to be an area of growth for the future. Um, but again, I think we just have to be mindful of where it is now versus where, say, the bulk commodities are. And <coughs> certainly in, in terms of growth rates, it will be repeatable will, will be faster than iron ore Others, but it's coming from a much, much smaller place. And the other thing is that, again, it's a, it's a matter of competition. We have some, I forget the number, we have sort of quite large global lithium deposits, but the way in which you know, the resources sector operates is that once there is a market for something, there's therefore more incentive to go looking for it in other markets as well. And um, so there'll be, you know, no doubt other sort of provinces and countries which are the sources of competition. But I do think, generally, we've got a little bit of a leading engine here in Australia, developing
0: lithium resources. David, you showed a slide with the three phases of the mining. Just a bit of a cheap question. When
3: do you see the next mining (laughs) work? Fundamentally, it's probably going to have to be See, the, the interesting thing about the mining industry is you know, a lot of what you've seen here in iron ore and in coal has really been linked very heavily to industrialisation and in Asian growth. I don't think we're going to, I mean, there's some unmet demand in China, <coughs> sorry, in India, but that, they've been sort of phenomenal, kind of once in a century sort of areas. Um, but if you look at you know, where the other sort of products are going to come into it, um, I know that BHP is very bullish on copper over the long term because it's um, yeah, it's intrinsic to many of the renewables developments. Um, you, know, you need sort of you need copper. Um, there are people who are very bullish on um, things. Well, even even steel manufacturers require for any kind of renewables revolution, um, something like 80% of windmills is, is steel. So. I'm not sure we're going to see a, a, that sort of huge volume growth repeated, because that was just like a little once in a lifetime thing. I think it will be slower. But I certainly think that there's still a lot of interest in further development of, um, of mining resources and Australia's mining resources. But it will probably be less in those mainstay bigger commodities and more in things like copper, lithium, uh, and those sorts of that's why I asked the question about India before. Yeah, where uh, India is each try not to. Because India might have take but would they? To get Look, to the it's standard? going to be that will be the that's probably the swing factor in that whole thing. What will happen with India, and what mm-hmm. will be its out over the long term? And you know, I think if the stars align for India, then you're going to see something of that order. Will it be as big? I'm mm-hmm. not sure. And as fast as rapid. I mean, think about what's happened in 20 years. It's just been huge yeah. you know, for China. Could that be repeated in any other country at that kind of scale over that period of time? I'm not so sure. I think it might have seemed just a phenomenon. And uh, we'll certainly see growth, but not sure we're going to see that kind of rapidity and, and height of growth.
0: Okay, I'm conscious of time. David, thank you very much, and obviously, David's with us for the duration, so any other questions or comments. Um, Dale, I'd like to welcome Dale Dale Thompson from um, Ausvine.
2: Uh, I think many of you I
0: know Dale, but Dale uh, has extensive experience in, um, in business improvement development, um, sales and marketing in Australia and overseas. Uh, through his role um, leading the Entrepreneurs' Program um, with Ausvine. Dale has worked with uh, over 100 different businesses on improving operations to reduce risk uh, for business owners while improving returns uh, and obviously has a wealth of knowledge in that sector. Dale. Thank you and thank you Kristen and David for setting
4: the scene. I'd like to talk about the opportunities that exist in this METS industry and how the free trade agreements might affect those industries. When I was first asked to give this presentation, I thought about a, a comment by Albert Einstein. He said, I was given a problem and an hour to solve it, and my life depended on it. I'd spend 55 minutes looking at the problem and five minutes on the solution. So I think it's important to actually understand the METS industry and where the countries in the foreign trade, in China, China and Korea, are actually headed and where their technology is going. So we'll have a quick look at Industry 4.0. We'll look at zero marginal cost economies and then we'll look at some geographic opportunities in China, Japan, Korea and Australia. We'll then look at the opportunities and what we need to do, and look at how government support can actually help you in those programs. <laughs> so we're in an immense marketplace. We see a, a lot of talk about the industry 4.0 data analytics, big data, sensing on every instrument. Um, I'd like to just sit back and say, well, where's this come from and how long has it been around? Well, in 2005, Komatsu trial the first automated truck in Chile with copper mine. So it's been around for 13 years. In 2008, Rio Tinto put automated trucks, autonomous trucks in the building. That's 10 years ago. So people sitting back saying, oh, autonomous mining, we've been doing it for 10 years. Um, At last year's IMAR conference, Michelle Ash, who's the chief innovation officer for Barrick Gold, said that. By 2023, we will have no miners underground or no miners above 4,500 metres for operational productivity reasons and for safety reasons. And you can take that one of two ways. Either those operations are going to be automated or they're going to sell them off. I think the latter is probably unlikely. So they'll be moving into automation. Another example of how automation is affecting the industry uh, came to me from Alberto Colderon, who's the CEO of Orica. He gave a presentation two weeks ago at the Melbourne Mining Club. And he said that in 2012 it was the height of the resources boom and commodity pricing, and everything was about tonnes. Just do what you have to to get it out the door. By 2014, at the bottom of the commodity price, it was all about cost down. And they were driving the mid sector to reduce their costs. By 2018, it's now about automation. So if you can create some value with your automation and your intelligence systems, you've actually got a position in the marketplace. To address that, I have developed Wi-Fi electronic detonators. That sounds like a lot of technology for not very much gain. What an electronic detonator enables you to do is to time the shot precisely to gain the best fragmentation. By using Wi-Fi or electronic communications, you no longer have the wires and cables on the bench. So it improves the safety of the operation, and you can remove the person from the bench, which means you can now use an autonomous explosive truck. So they've got Wi-Fi electronic decks and robotic trucks loading shots. That's a huge improvement in efficiency and effectiveness. So what we're talking about all these robotic opportunities uh, I've read up on the International Federation of Robotics on their paper from 2016. They said that China was 20% of the world's population are taking 40% of the world's robots. In 2015, <coughs> Xi Jinping said, we need to get on this automation train. We need to improve our own production facilities. So they are building autonomous factories. They're actually taking 87,000 robots a year, manufacturing robots. 87,000 manufacturing robots every year. To set that like the into context, the Republic of South Korea, they take 41,600, about half. Japan, take 38,600. Australia, we were in the other bit, down the bottom of the chart. So, so we're not setting up to, to compete in that environment. And That environment is something that was described by Jeremy Rifkin back in 1980. He talked about the world economy asymptoting towards a zero-marginal cost economy. That's where you have set up your automated factory and the extra cost to produce one item is zero. That's a zero-marginal cost economy. And as we asymptote towards that, making stuff is a competitive marketplace where you really need to be the lowest common denominator. So if we look geographically at the market and we say, what's happening in China? Where would the METs industry go? Well, we're certainly not going to try and compete on producing stuff because China's little robots. But they are actually closing a lot of their old underground and surface operations that are heavily labour-orientated. They're unsafe, small, narrow openings. You can't automate them, so they're closing them and they're opening new autonomous mines. That creates an opportunity for Australian service companies to take their technology there, environmental companies can take their information there. There's not much mining going on in Japan these days, but there is a lot of legacy mines in Japan that are producing acid mine drainage that needs to be treated. We have environmental consultants in this country that can help them treat that problem. So there's an export opportunity for Australian Mets that will be ongoing for years. In Korea, we think about massive engineering companies when they built Premium that's now operating off the northwest shelf of Western Australia in the LNG market, the FLNG plant, we actually had an Australian service company providing the insulation fire protection on that rig. So a company from Sydney went over there, used local labour, used their skills to project manage the fire protection on it. And I know that because I work with the company as one of my OSMINE business advisory clients. So the challenge that faces the Australian METS industry is to create value in their products and services in a 0 marginal cost economy. We need to upskill our jobs, we need to stop digging faster and start digging smarter. So when we did a survey at Ospine, we did a survey to look at the mining companies and actually ask them what they saw as important in a METS provider. 67% responded quality. That's how you compete, quality. 56% indicated that relationships were highly important. 43% said that skilled staff, how we can develop the skilled staff through the training organisations and through the mining houses of Australia. 29% said unique products. 22% said new technologies. Only 15% said price. We don't need to compete in a zero-margin cost economy and a race to the bottom line. We need to be better, have good relationships, and have new technology. Just to look at some examples of that. David, you indicated Gecko is a Mets company here in Victoria. Gecko produced mineral processing equipment and to their claim to fame, I am surprised that they could pull it off. But uh, the Hope River. There's a gold mine operating above the Arctic Circle. It's at the far end of the ice road. They built the gold processing plant, and I think it was 250 odd containers, reagents from different markets, brought it all together, shipped it in one season, and then built the plant, and now it's working. That's an amazing achievement, and that skill is here in Victoria. Uh, if I think across the, uh, the ditch to Tasmania, Elpingston underground equipment. Elkingston manufacture underground mining equipment in Tasmania. They have the cost penalty of bringing in the raw materials. They have the cost penalty of taking that equipment across to the North Island so they can then ship it to the rest of the world and they can compete in that market. Because our Mets is highly skilled, we have unique products, we have very good quality. And David, your comment about the major miners want to work with the major companies like CAT, Komatsu. That's why Elphinstone use the CAT drivetrain. Because if you buy a piece of Elphinstone equipment and it breaks down, you can go and get a CAT spare part off the shelf anywhere around the world. But there are companies in Tasmania who are in the CAT international supply chain. They're accredited authorised suppliers of CAT parts to CAT in Tasmania. We have a huge mass industry here achieving success. Pilbara Insulation is that company that did the premium in the uh, Korean shipyard. Uh, just to quote a different example, there's a company that I thought was quite in, intelligent and, and innovative and, and quite an inspiration, Rode Microphones. Who would think you could make microphones in Australia? The world's recording artists seek out Rode to get their microphones because they're simply the best. They they have a turnover of $60 million, have a factory of 10,000 square metres, employ 250 people, an Australian company, a success story. We can do this stuff, we just need to do it. The equipment maintenance market in the mining or MET sector is 23% of the business. So by using our smarts and our intelligent people, we can then offer service and maintenance on this mining equipment, Um, An example of that is head engineering who are producing bespoke automated equipment for undertaking the dangerous operations on mine equipment like when you take a mine truck tire apart to replace it and repair it, it requires automated equipment so you can take the miner away from that dangerous operation. Mine maintenance, actually doing the maintenance around the mine on the equipment and the geology and infrastructure, business operations, let's look at the software. We're talking about 60% of the mining engineering software comes out of Australia. That's huge. We can do that. The advanced manufacturing, well I think Gecko and Elfie's done pretty good examples of advanced manufacturing. And the mining equipment that we manufacture here. Uh, Think of RME in Queensland. They manufacture automated equipment for changing the wear plates on the inside of sag mills. So, all of a sudden, now we used to send the miner into the mill to drill out the wear plates and put new ones in. It was one of the most dangerous operations. Now we've got automated equipment that can do that process, and they are selling this equipment around the world to repair the sag mills in uh, mining operations. And they came out of Toowoomba. So there's plenty of opportunities here. So how does the government help that? Well, I'm part of the Entrepreneurs' Program. We work with the SMEs, who are Australian Nets. And what we do is we provide business assistance and advice to help them step up to the next level, to be ready for export markets, to be ready to meet the Industry 4.0 challenge, help them innovate and move forward.
0: And that's what I have here. Thanks, Carl. Uh, anybody have any, any sort of initial thoughts or uh, questions for Dale? In terms of um, obviously a very entrepreneurial sector in the next
2: sector here in Australia. Uh, just a quick comment, Gecko had a great wrap up on landline, but uh, I did that. It's uh, actually working uh, with dairy farmers and uh, using uh, their techniques for uh, processing um, animal uh, waste and uh, efficiencies in uh, generating electricity, so, mm-hmm. yeah, And uh, to see their CEO just talk to the sort of local farms and their bendy garden places, it's quite, uh, I think we should be proud of companies like that. Yes.
4: That's a new division, they just split yeah. that off.
2: And very good, good, well, mm-hmm. it's, it's good to see, yeah, that put on TV. Can I ask Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think I made the comment that, you know, that,
3: that the companies tend to be SMEs. Yes. What do you think that is? I mean, given the size of the mining sector, all of the history that Australia has in mind, what do you think it is we don't have any sort of, apart from say, America, globally dominant um, you know, sector companies?
4: I think that's because we tend to specialise in technology and that tends to splinter off. We don't become large companies manufacturing, like cat produce thousands of bulldozers every day. The software and the intelligent services that we provide is more entrepreneurial, it's more the skills and the knowledge in one head that tends to revolve around that.
0: So the questions so we were talking just briefly before we commenced today, and MIT is doing a lot of work in the enterprise formation and business creation space for students, alumni, and also for academics and researchers. Um, in the med sector, are you seeing large companies placing bets in terms of investing in startup companies in uh, in the med sector, so that they've got a line into some of these small entrepreneurial startups, with view a future acquisition or acquiring technologies or is it fairly um, I guess undeveloped in terms of how they're doing the banks, they've all like you know incubators and accelerators, with the other organizations there doing things internally and also investing in other companies in different industries just to sort of you know, I guess put a few lifeboats out there, so to speak, in terms of what they're doing? Are you seeing that in the next space at all? In terms of
3: the Incubator space, the unearthed people are doing hackathons and
4: they're encouraging a lot of entrepreneurs and early startup, pre startup, pre revenue companies. Um, not seeing a lot of support
3: for people once they've gone past the pre revenue stage. Okay. From the companies. I, I've got a on that. I think you're right. It's only just starting now. You're starting to see some of the major companies doing just that okay. because they're really in a bit of a different game now. with Know, trying to sort of get their minds around the big data and what it means and take therefore lessons from other industries and so forth. So I think you're starting to see this as point number one. But well, point number two, I'd be interested in your comment, though, whether you agree with me, that what has stood in the way of some of that at least has been probably the desire of the major mining companies to keep the technology in-house, to keep the intellectual property you know, rights to it in-house. Yeah. We're starting to see that sort of opening up. As well now. I know BHP, for example, has been clear about the fact that he wants to go much more open source technology. So that if there's a common platform which we compete on that platform, therefore you'll be able to get more competition after all, therefore more Mm -hmm. services supplies too. It's not uniform across the industry, it's slower. In fact, it's quite different. You know, most of my history was in the oil and gas industry. It's quite different to the oil and gas industry where I would say that you know really the the people who brought who, you know, technological advance to the industry tended to be out of the services companies, the Schlumberger's, the Halliburton's, you know the Honeywell's. It's companies like that that really brought that sort of kick along in that investment. It was because there wasn't probably so much, apart from maybe running to two of them, they just attachment to having to hold intellectual property in house. And I think we'll see that change. Companies go about it in different ways, but um, I just wonder whether you might have seen that to be a bit of a barrier as well. I think you're right, and it is, it is
4: uh, or has been, a paradigm that if we can develop a better mining method or a new piece of equipment, and we have that mineral processing, uh, the not process. If we can gain that technology, we can have an advantage in the marketplace at a given commodity price. Um, we are now seeing shift shift that's opening up. A comment about the energy oil I guess we saw a lot in the oil and gas industry, which has education control, automation equipment. People like Chevron, Shell, and the like have used technology in that sector for 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, including VHP, now all of a sudden, mining sector saying we're getting into automation. Is the industry itself, the, the old boys club that the mining game has been in Australia and still is, going to be a herd for the mining industry to actually achieve
3: what the oil and gas industry is achieved? It's a great question. Um, look, I think that you know essentially what's happening is that you know, the mining industry is seeing reality and that it is much more of a globalised player I and mean, you're getting Look, you even look at a guy like uh, Andrew McKenzie you know, at BHP. He brings a lot of ideas from oil and gas and from other environments. You look at uh, JS at Rio Tinto. Again, but part of the, if there wasn't old boys talking Australian mining, that's been broken apart by you know new senior management in the industry with very different ideas, operating much more the global templates. So, my own view is that, you know, inevitably, you will find that that will break down, that sort of, I know there has been, it's fair to say, some kind of resistance from that. There's been a bit of an arrogance, about the major mining companies and the way in which they've dealt with suppliers. That was curious to me, coming from the and gas industry, where, number one, point was you partner with your suppliers? Because they're a vital part of your business. I'm generalising here, that's not always the case of the mining sector, but it has been in the not-too-distant past where there has been a little bit of that view within the industry to say that we're big, we can command, you you, you come to us and we'll tell you where we are watching the be. It's all a little bit one-sided in some respects. That's breaking down reality is breaking down, Competition is breaking it down and really, you know, new methods of mining and a new focus on technology. Well, I'm
0: conscious of time, um, and uh, I think maybe we might look to, unless there's any other questions, um, sort of wrap up the official part of uh, today. I know that we were running through till about two o'clock, but um, just before I do so, I just want to say thanks very much to you, Kristen. Uh, David and also Dale um, for presentations and comments, and also to others for questions and, and discussion today. Um, please feel free to um, stay about, uh, have a conversation. Um, no need to rush off. And uh, thanks very much for attending. Thank you. Thank you.